I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. This war really shook the foundations of the Russia community and the way that we understood the Russia challenge. Putin simply is unwilling to end the war. And one of the annoying things about wars is it's typically up to the loser to decide when the war is over. Nine months after Russia invaded Ukraine, its military is struggling, its economy is battered, and its global influence is in decline. Yet in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs, Andrea Kendall-Taylor and Michael Kaufman warn that despite all of this, the West cannot be complacent about the danger from Russia. They write, even if Putin loses, the problem that Russia poses will not be solved. In many ways, it will grow in intensity. My colleague Kate Brannon spoke with Andrea and Michael at a recent foreign affairs event about this warning and what it means for the West. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Andrea Kendall-Taylor and Michael Kaufman. Andrea is director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security. And Michael is the research program director of the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis and a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. I'm excited to talk to you both today about your recent article, Russia's Dangerous Decline. It really serves as a warning not to become too complacent about Russian power and the threat it might pose uh, despite its losses on the battlefield. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to have you both walk us through what the war has done to Russian power, sort of before we warn about not writing it off yet. But it obviously has suffered through the course of the war so far. And I thought we could start with the military and and Michael, if you could tell us what toll the war has taken on the Russian military and what your thoughts are about recent mobilization and what impact that could have at at reviving that power, if, if any. So the war, at least certainly the last eight months of it, have inflicted tremendous costs on Russia's conventional forces, particularly its ground forces. Russia has spent and misspent a lot of its best manpower, a good deal of its armored force, and a fair amount of ammunition, especially artillery ammunition, and a good deal of its park of conventional and precision-guided weapons. That said, Russia still retains a lot of some of the higher-end capabilities that are most concerning for NATO and for the U.S. in defense planning. These are things like integrated air defense, advanced submarines, counter-satellite systems, and the like. And many of these had either not been used or used but not lost in large amounts in the war in Ukraine. To be perfectly frank, I think a lot of times in military planning, probably the least concerning aspect of the Russian force were sort of modernized uh, late 80s Soviet-era tanks and infantry fighting vehicles are much more concerning with these higher-end capabilities and their implications. So where does leave the Russian military? Well, it's still fighting. Mobilization can help Russia fix some of the structural problems in its force in terms of its manpower deficit in the war, but it can't fix the quality side of the equation in terms of the level of training of the personnel, leadership. Russia's lost a lot of its best officers and a lot of its best equipment. If the Russian leadership had chosen to mobilize back in April after the initial invasion clearly failed, it might have led to somewhat different outcomes because they still had a large percentage of the force available. They had listed professionals, officers, they had a lot more equipment to use, but they didn't. So mobilizing into the winter, I think, is partly an act of desperation to stabilize their lines, but they have conscripted a fairly sizable amount of personnel. And the question is, what's that going to yield for them three to four months later? I think it could extend the war. Quantity is not deterministic, but it does actually matter. 
Mobilization has significant positive effects for Ukraine. Russia doesn't benefit from the intangibles that Ukraine does. It doesn't have the motivation or the morale on the one hand, but on the other hand, it could nonetheless extend the war. I can see a couple of different trajectories that the situation could take in the next several months. Could simply make uh, offensives more challenging or more costly. So it's a picture to watch. And I think a better period to assess than that effective mobilization might be something towards February rather than right now. I also wanted to talk about the Russian military industrial base because this is really a war of attrition. It comes down to who runs out of ammo and equipment and people first. And in Washington, you hear a lot of concern and a lot of talk about the American industrial base because it's supplying uh, the Ukraine side of the war. And you hear less about the Russian military industrial base. And I think of it as sort of these industrial bases, including Europe, sort of squaring off against each other. What has been the impact on the Russian military industrial base, not just the war, but obviously American sanctions and Western sanctions? And where is it having the most trouble in supplying its own troops? And how does it find workarounds? You hear about chips from washing machines being repurposed and missiles and things like that. So how is Russia sort of being creative to get around these problems it's facing? There's a couple of different issues there. So first, uh, regarding our own defense industrial base, it's clear that in many respects we become victims of the efficiency model, which may work in business, but is not necessarily suitable for when you're planning for major wars. Conventional wars do come down to attrition. And they come down to replaceability of manpower, equipment, and ammunition. And the side that is best able to reconstitute over time can then begin to return to maneuver warfare, create real operational dilemmas for their opponent. By U.S. defense industrial base, and particularly European defense industrial bases, demonstrate that our, our output's quite low in key areas, like artillery ammunition, rocket ammunition, what have you. And that a lot of what's been given is forcibly given out of stockpiles. It's essentially pulling out of your ammunition savings account. And that the longer the war goes on, the more challenging it is because you begin running out of ammunition at an excessive rate. The Russian military also has substantial problems with ammunition. They were heavily reliant on artillery to offset their deficit in manpower in the spring and summer. They came about to mobilizing industrial production quite late and getting equipment out of storage, trying to increase artillery production. I think they're going to be facing deficits. In fact, I think that that's probably the biggest issue right now for the Russian military effort and why they've adopted a defensive strategy writ large, trying to entrench for the winter and reconstitute the force. I'm quite skeptical on their ability to return offensive potential after the winter, but we'll see. Regarding the defense industrial sector overall, so a couple of points here merit uh, mentioning. The first is that the Russian defense industrial complex is not autarkic, that is, it's not self-sufficient, it is heavily dependent in areas on import of Western components, chips, electronics, key components, maybe bearings and the like. That said, it is relatively more self-sufficient than most other countries because our defense industries are actually heavily intertwined to global supply chains. And do, we also do a lot of co-development. So in that regard, Russia is a lot more self-sufficient than other countries. But its main dependencies will be components and also machine tools. They spent years modernizing and tooling up the defense industry with Western machine tools, in fact, which are frankly the best ones. And they're going to have problems sustaining it over time. Regarding sanctions, though, and export controls, I think here a lot of the conversation might be overly optimistic, or let's say not exactly technically sound. So first, sanctions are going to have a very immediate effect and quite noticeable effect, as we've seen, on the Russian economy and key commercial sectors that are dependent on foreign imports. But it's going to take quite a while for them to actually affect Russia's defense industrial complex. Many of the stories I've seen uh, early on in spring and summer, I'm sorry, I just don't believe them to be true. 
And we've seen the Russian defense industry deliver batches of equipment throughout this year. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is um, a very low information environment. Here's the reality. I think export controls over time, and over time I mean over the course of years, not over the course of months. Like these are effects you are not going to be seeing within the span of eight months. I'm sorry, nobody's just operating on a two-month supply of chips in the defense industry, in the Russian military. That's very unlikely. Export controls will substantially constrain their access to these components. They will have to find workarounds. Now, Russia, like countries, let's say, such as Iran, is rather well-practiced at trying to get around export controls and importing chips through fake end-user certificates, shell companies, and what have you. In fact, we now have the opportunity to pull apart Iranian weapons that Russia is using their drones. And they're actually quite full of uh, U.S. chips, too. And they've been one of the longest sanctions countries in the world. And it's a very mixed story in terms of efficacy of export controls because they come down to enforcement. So I'll wrap up on this. The more expansive the sanctions regime, the more difficult it is to enforce, the more it becomes a question of enforcement and playing a bit of a game of whack-a-mole mm -hmm. with the Russian military and, and Russian intelligence community that's trying to get around export controls. I think you should appreciate that these things aren't talismanic, meaning they don't magically cut Russia off of access to chips and technologies. They make it much longer and much more costlier for Russia to acquire these technologies. But you should have some way to say moderate ex moderated expectations of the downstream effects. Just to highlight the point, because you mentioned it too, and Mike touched on it a little bit, which is the concern about U.S. and European defense industrial base in our ability to sustain weapons to Ukraine. I mean, we are facing a lot of challenges in that regard. And I think there's two key problems that I keep hearing regularly. One is kind of the U.S. contracts. I heard anecdotally that after the White House announced that they would provide the NASAMs to Ukraine, it took more than six months to actually get the contract signed and that production line going. And then similarly, you hear a lot about our defense uh, companies not having the horizon, not having confidence that the orders will keep coming. Mm -hmm. And so they're not willing to make the costly investments to add new supply lines and other things that are going to be needed in order to sustain the weapon. So Mike's right, like Russia will have some challenges on the defense side, but it is amazing major focus, I think, right in this current moment for both the United States and the Europeans, we recognize it's a challenge and everyone is trying to figure out what it will take in order to be able to sustain the weapons that will that Ukraine needs in order to stay on the fight and reclaim territory. While you bring that up, I wanted to talk a little bit about the U.S. midterms and the American political picture because it's directly tied to American staying power in Ukraine and the inability of defense contractors to plan out like, largely depends on this political question in the United States and how long the U.S. will support Ukraine um, and whether it will wobble at all. Any sense from the results of the midterms? You know, there was not this red wave, which to some people predicted, you know, perhaps a, more scrutiny on Ukraine aid. Is there a sense of relief now that that hasn't happened from our allies or from Ukrainians themselves? Is there anything on that front that you could shed light on? Yeah, I think there's definitely relief that you hear from allies and also the Ukrainians. Um, but I, I still think we have a near-term, long-term problem. So in the near term, I feel really confident that the United States and with this Congress will be able to sustain support for Ukraine. 
ahead of the elections, there were some kind of perilous moments, right, when you had McCarthy with his statement that the United States wouldn't provide a blank check. And then on the Democratic side, on the far left, the letter that came out that was also kind of um, pushing towards negotiations. I think what was notable about both of those things is McCarthy kind of had to walk back his statements and clearly the Democratic caucus uh, quickly rescinded its letter. So Mm -hmm. that, I think, inspired some hope. But with this outcome, it seems to me that at least military support to Ukraine will remain strong and robust. That seems to be where there is extremely strong bipartisan consensus that we need to continue to sustain the military aid. I think where I get a little bit more nervous is on the economic aid front. And I think that is likely to be a bit more of a challenge. I think you will, even though the Dems um, hold the Senate in the House, you're going to hear more and more about oversight. And you know, like that's what was what was behind uh, McCarthy's statements in many ways. More about oversight, more about anti-corruption, making sure American tax dollars are being spent adequately. And the other thing that I'm a bit concerned about, too, is there is a widening gap between what the United States is providing in terms of economic support to Ukraine and what the Europeans are providing. And I think I am surprised, honestly, that some of the kind of Trumpian Republicans haven't pounced on this more to say that, you know, our allies aren't pulling their fair share. This is a war that's happening in Europe. Why aren't they doing more? So mm-hmm. I do think it's plausible that you, this can this might become the new 2% where you see some Republicans kind of bashing allies for not doing enough. So though, But in the near term, dollar amounts on uh, military aid, I feel good about. I worry more on the economic aid front. But we do have this looming concern over the longer term in terms of what happens with the elections. And obviously, Putin and others are watching very closely because it is possible, it is plausible that if Trump were to reannounce and win or another Trump-like candidate, that that kind of support for Ukraine could be reversed. So I guess that's the, it's a good news story in the near term with still a lot of question marks in the longer term. To go back to sort of assessing Russian power, I wanted to ask you, Andrea, a little bit about Russian economic power and political power. At the beginning of the war, there were really dire predictions about what would happen to the Russian economy in the near term as these sort of new sanctions were being leveled upon the Russian government. It's a, definitely a murkier picture, I feel like, than the, than the military itself. But how do you assess the state of the Russian economy right now and, and how it relates to its power in the world? Well, Mike touched on some of this with the uh, sanctions and export controls, but you're right. I think the Russian economy, the World Bank adjusted its assessment for this year that the Russian economy would contract by just 6%. And by comparison, I think Ukraine is something like 35 to 40%. Its GDP will will, will shrink. So I think in the immediate, um, the, the sanctions and export controls didn't have the impact that many hoped that it would. But over the long term, as the points that Mike made, this, the sanctions and the export controls in particular are likely to continue to constrict and constrain Russia on the economic front. And certainly all of the steps that Europe is taking to diversify its energy dependence away from Russia over the long term will significantly weaken Russia economically and take away a key source of leverage that the Russians have been able to have and use regularly over the Europeans. So I do, I think it's a bit of a mixed picture. The other point we make in the article is that Russia has never been an economic powerhouse, and yet it's always been able to threaten and disrupt and challenge U.S. interests. 
The other key point that we make too, I think, is that the more isolated that Russia is economically, the less of a stakeholder it is in the rules of the game, the more kind of emboldened it is to be disruptive. And I think those are the key points. So on all of these things, whether it's the military, the economy, yes, of course, Russia is going to emerge from this weekend on both of those fronts, but it still retains important capabilities that the United States has to pay attention to. I think for us, that was the point of this article is number one, kind of in the immediate aftermath of the conflict, we saw a lot of experts and analysts in the community starting to significantly wave off Russia as a challenge, basically saying, well, if they can't even beat the Ukrainians, then really the United States and Europe don't need to worry about Russia. So that was one we wanted to speak to that and I think have a more nuanced assessment. And then the other point of this article is this war really shook the foundations of the Russia community and the way that we understood the Russia challenge. And so we saw this article as beginning the conversation of trying to evaluate, well, now what is the the nature of the Russia challenge? Because we don't want to underestimate Russia because that creates all sorts of risks and challenges, but nor do we want to overestimate what it is because we recognize with China and climate change, there's so many competing challenges. So we wanted to start the conversation of trying to understand now, given what has happened in Ukraine, what is the nature of this Russian threat? Yeah, it does feel like Americans have real whiplash when it comes to the Russian threat. It's either this like mastermind genius who's changing elections here in the United States, or it's, you know, a complete fool who's humiliated itself on the battlefield. And it, it, it does feel like we can't right size that threat properly. Michael, I'm curious, I know you were in Ukraine recently. Do the Ukrainians see Russia clearly or or do they, is there that, is there any level of complacency there? No, I think if anything, they're actually less complacent than we are here and and less consuming of the victory narrative, right? Which is the distinction between Ukraine is winning and it has the initiative and it's doing quite well versus it has already won, which is the sentiment you often get on social media and actually not just social media, regular media. I think in Ukraine, the approach is much more sober-minded, understanding that this is a conflict that's likely to go on. Ukraine is certainly winning, but a lot of its effort hinges on external material assistance, the material availability and the policy to make it available particularly in the United States. I won't say the United States is the only factor, but to be frank, I think it's the number one significant variable. And also many European countries, their policies of support are reactive to the U.S. policy because they look to see to what extent the U.S. is willing to give something to see if they're also going to contribute. And I think in Ukraine, the the views are all optimistic, but often defense establishments have to plan for worst case scenario. They don't find Russian mobilization, even with all the problems that it has had visibly, to be a laughing matter. There they understand that the Russian military was able to conduct an orderly withdrawal of most of its forces from Kyrgyzstan. It's a major strategic victory from Ukraine, but they realize they'll have to face those forces again on another front. And that the Russian plan is to try to extend the war and push the war well into next year while uh, attempting to destroy Ukrainian critical infrastructure, right, to raise the economic toll and to increase the number of refugees. In Ukraine, my impression is that of a well-motivated military and of dealing with folks who very much think they're winning, but also quite realistic about how much more there is to do, right? And not quite as optimistic that, you know, these these uh, last two victories mean that it's going to be a short war or that it's going to be an easy one. Actually, the campaign in Kyrgyzstan was quite costly. It was a grinding attritional battle. And also understanding that there's still a fair deal of uncertainty in terms of 
whether the Russian military could stabilize its lines, whether it could entrench over the course of the winter and how that campaign can go, and the, the Russian strike campaign and its attempt to whittle away the Ukrainian economy. We'll be back after a short break. The Foreign Affairs Interview is brought to you by Foreign Affairs Magazine. The magazine provides thoughtful takes on global events, straight from the world's leading experts. You can get unlimited access, including daily articles online, six issues a year, and a century of archives for only $39.95. Subscribe today at foreignaffairs.com slash subscribe. I want to shift gears to the discussions of negotiations. Andrea, you mentioned the Progressive Caucus letter that came out at the end of October. It was quickly walked back and the people who signed it disavowed it. But recently, just this week, you have General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, telling an audience in New York that the winter is really a moment, a window to seize and to get both sides to the negotiating table. Again, the Biden administration has distanced itself from these comments. It's it's difficult to tell what's exactly going on there. But what's your take on this larger discussion about negotiations and whether it's the proper time now um, or whether, you know, with Ukraine winning on the battlefield, it's really not the moment. What is your take on that? It is absolutely not the moment. And I think if anything, we should be having a discussion about how the United States and Europe can lean in in the wake of the victory in Kherson to push even harder. I mean, the risk is now that after this victory, subsequent victories for Ukraine could become ever more difficult as Russian forces are kind of consolidated and as they build up their defensive lines. And so what we want to prevent happening is this moving into a stalemate that drags on for a very long time. That's not in the U.S. interest. It will increase the cost of sustaining a very long war. It increased the cost that we will have to pay eventually to rebuild and reconstruct Ukraine. And it creates really significant risks to Western cohesion, which up until this point has been impressive. But the longer this goes, the greater the risks become. So it is absolutely not the right time to be talking about any sort of negotiations. And, and Mike makes this point regularly that certainly any ceasefire would just be used by Russia to reconstitute forces um, and, and, and they would come back at another time. So I think that's where we are. And I would say from the Russian side, 100 missiles launched and lobbed into Ukraine again. Um, that certainly is not a signal of a side that's ready and willing um, and genuine about any sort of negotiation. So I don't know exactly where the administration is. I agree. Um, it is confusing with a lot of mixed signals. My sense is what you said, Kate, is that the White House in particular is trying to distance itself from Millie's statements recently, reiterating that now is not the time for negotiations. And so my sense is that's where the White House is. But again, it's, it's really hard to tell. But I think now is certainly not the time for any sort of negotiations. I think it's important to consider that usually in the war, if you want to have negotiations for a ceasefire, you're looking for one of two things, and neither of them are present in the situation. The first is a military stalemate, which doesn't exist. Ukrainians are actually winning, and if you're trying to impose a ceasefire, it's only going to benefit Russia, which desperately needs several months to try to reconstitute its forces. That is the Russian strategy moving forward. But then they would would only renew the war. The second is either side being willing to revise their minimal war aims, which neither is willing to do. They're irreconcilable. And Vladimir Putin, by going through with annexation, has essentially severed his ability to revise minimal war aims. So there's not much for him and Ukrainians to talk about after his uh, annexation of Ukrainian territory. 
right? What, what the settlement point is now is profoundly unclear. So from my point of view, uh, that entire conversation is very much premature and it's not aligned with Ukrainian sentiments at all and, and the Ukrainian approach in this war. So I'll leave it at that. It's not, I'm not being sort of performatively hawkish and saying there's no space for negotiations. Many wars end with negotiated settlements, even when one side's clearly defeated. It's just, this doesn't look like the time for it. And a lot of the conversations are really premature. Michael, just to think a little bit about what happens next, what does control of Kherson and, and acquiring it in the way that it did, you know, without as big a fight maybe as some expected, what does it set Ukraine up to do next? So realistically, taking Kherson allows Ukraine to move up long range artillery fire to range a lot of the southern occupied territory, not down to Crimea. But it also allows them to now free all those forces that were deployed on a very large front in Kherson and perhaps displace them to a different part of the battlefield. The most important aspect of this victory is that it eliminates the prospect for a future Russian campaign along the southern coast because Russia no longer has a foothold west of the Dnieper River. So it no longer has the opportunity to try to pursue a future campaign towards Mykolaiv or Odessa. I think now Ukraine has a number of options regarding what they might want to do. Right? They have the freedom of maneuver. They have interior lines. That is, it's much easier for them to shift forces within Ukraine than it is for Russia to shift forces around Ukraine between different fronts. They can now move them to Donetsk and Luhansk, or they can work to reconstitute forces and prepare for a major offensive in the South, maybe in the future. I'm not going to speculate. Regarding the the kind of immediate military outcome, yet to see. So the Dnieper River is a significant natural barrier. It's not an insurmountable barrier, but it is a big natural barrier. And it's clear that the Russian military's plan is to try to essentially fortify behind it, right, and shift forces further east and try to consolidate defensive lines, at least for the next uh, several months. And Ukraine's military strategy, from what I can tell, is to try to disrupt the reconstitution of Russian forces over the winter. That is to keep up the pressure, to increase the level of attrition, because Ukraine does have a qualitative advantage in the kind of artillery and arms that it's using, and to keep the battlefield dynamic, to keep it from sort of freezing and entrenching behind which Russia can use this time period to uh, raise the manning level tables in its forces, to build out reserves, to rotate troops, and try to fix many of the problems in its military over the next four months, right? So even though as winter looms, it's actually the worst of November and December because it's cold and muddy and rainy, the battlefield itself, it's not going to become stalemated or, or necessarily stagnant, even though the weather itself is probably prohibitive towards large-scale military offenses. Usually is. Well, I just want to thank you both so much for doing this and thank everyone for joining us today. Please find and read our latest November, December 2022 issue in which you'll find both Andrea and Michael's article that they wrote together. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Marcus Zacharia. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, and Gabrielle Sierra. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.